Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben here. Welcome back to the podcast. It's episode 455. It's August 24th, 2022. Our guest today is Ken Pallone. You will learn more about him in a minute, but he is the author of a great little book, uh, Lean Leadership on a Napkin. An Executive's Guide to Lean Transformation in Three Proven Steps. So we'll be talking about that book. We'll be talking about his time at Toyota. We'll be talking about his time working in healthcare, or at least a little bit. We'll probably do another full episode about that down the road. So long discussion today, but there was so much to uh, pick Ken's brain on. A lot of um, great thoughts, insights, stories, opinions. Uh, I think you will really enjoy this episode. So for Links and more information, look in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 455. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Our guest today is Ken Pallone. He has more than 30 years of experience in organizational development in industries including government, retail, automotive, distribution, and aerospace. He's currently working in healthcare. He's the Senior Manager of Business Process Engineering at Providence Health and Services. He's joining us from California. Now, when we say automotive, Ken spent nearly 20 years with Toyota as a lean consultant within the company, as well as working with suppliers, vendors, partners, and community groups. He was a co-creator of the University of Toyota um, at the company headquarters when it was located there in California. And he led the work to adapt uh, TPS to non-production environments And in addition, he led a group called the Center for Lean Thinking. So Ken has a master's in industrial psychology and organizational development. And I'm happy to say he's the author of a book I've been enjoying quite a bit. It's called Lean Leadership on a Napkin, an Executive's Guide to Lean Transformation in Three Proven Steps. So Ken, thank you. Thank you for being here today. How are you? Well, it's my pleasure. And I'm doing well. Thank you so much for including me. Yeah, well, it's 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 great to talk to you here. Um, we'll we'll come back and talk more about the book, but you know, three three proven steps certainly, and and you 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 touch on this in the book. It doesn't mean three easy steps, right? That is absolutely right. I mean, it's simple to explain, but hard to execute. Yeah. So you explain well in the book, and we'll we'll get to tap into some of that um, here today. Uh, and, and 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 there are so many stories and things we can touch on here today. So I'm really excited about it, and I think we can connect dots as your career has shifted, Ken, in particular, I'm interested in hearing about, you know, bringing these ideas from TPS and Lean um, into healthcare. But, you know, first off, if if I do have standard work for the question I start with most of the time, I do like to ask guests, you know, what their their Lean origin story. And my understanding, we'll we'll hear a few minutes that actually started before Toyota, which which is interesting, I think. Yeah, well, I had my embryonic beginnings in lean, um, I'll say, with quality circles and aerospace. And then it was um, it was couched really as as promoting efficiency within the aerospace business, which had a great need for that. Um, However, it was not lean as we know it today. But that's how I first sort of cut my teeth on the idea and the improvement. The, the notion of people getting together to improve things um, and cut that across organizational collaboration and sort of the, as I said, sort of the embryonic beginnings of what would eventually shape up in my mind is lean. Mm-hmm. 
So for, for context, you know, uh, let's say some younger listeners might not really be familiar with quality circles as a, a term or an approach. I mean, I, you know, it, it's something that's still used uh, in Japanese companies. I, I rarely hear the term here in the States anymore. So if you could just give kind of a quick overview of, you know, that quality circle approach as you experienced it. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it occurs to me that I haven't heard the expression either in a really long time. I mean, <laughs> sure. quality circles is, it was one of several attempts that I remember in the early days to try to engage more people in improvement rather than just having top executives um, by means of stone tablets decree what would change. Um, but instead, uh, started to get people closer to the actual work to get together and and try to figure out how to improve quality. And that was the focus back then. It was primarily and almost ex- exclusively around defects, uh, managing defects and so on. Of course, from that came other disciplines, Six Sigma and so on. But the quality circle movement at that time was very popular and widespread, but it seems to have given way um, to lean and other methodologies since then. Yeah. And, you know, my, my exposure to quality circles, um, like you said, it was engaging team members. So that th- there's one in the plus column uh, for that. Um, giving people some leeway to choose what they're motivated to work on, I think, is another plus. But I think, you know, one of the challenges, uh, it seems like the typical quality circle project might take six months mm. to complete. So, you know, maybe... The, the more recent creation, which is arguably not a Toyota practice of, let's say the Kaizen event is, is meant to be a more accelerated, more focused uh, improvement burst instead of being something where, you know, a team gets together weekly, monthly, trying to mm-hmm. you know, kind of speed up some of that improvement. Yeah. Yeah. That was my experience too. I mean, it, it, it's hard not only to maintain or achieve much momentum, when you have these random meetings, but it, half of the opportunities when you did get together was going cycling back and and trying to remember what we did last <laughs> time and what we decided we're going to do this time. And new members right. would come and, and and old members would leave, and so there's always a, the challenge of bringing people up to speed. And it was it was awkward and stilted, um, but I again I think it's the. The biggest contribution that came from those days is the realization that uh, people closest to the work actually had something worthwhile to say. <laughs> uh, they had something to listen to and they had something to contribute to. And, and that by itself was new. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like there's been maybe an effort to reduce in a way, uh, well, you know, to reduce the lead time and maybe reduce some of the batch sizes of the work um, or, or minimizing delays between the actual work, you know, from let's say a quality circle or a TQM project to a Kaizen event or blitz. But then it seems like more the ideal. And this is why you know, I'm curious to hear your experiences at Toyota. I mean, more of the ideal of everybody improving something everywhere, every day, where it doesn't necessarily require the formality of a project or an event. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, kind of moving toward maybe an ideal of continuous flow Kaizen, if you will. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, As I've explained my experience at Toyota to others where um, organizations less sophisticated in this area will 
focus on a series of events or they'll have like departmental Kaizen events here and there and they track them on boards and all that <clears throat> compared to Toyota where events were actually relatively rare. Um, the closest there really would be to an event is at the, at the end of a shift where um, the people in a given work group or team would sit around on a picnic table, reflect on the day and what went well, what didn't go well, what they're going to try tomorrow, what experiments they might want to conduct. Uh, and even at headquarters where, you know, it's, it's all white collar work. Um, improvement was part of every dialogue, part of every meeting, part of every agenda. And so it, the quote improvement events um, were rare and not very conspicuous. Uh, it was just embedded in the daily routines there. If you're going to work there, you're going to be in, involved in improving all the time everywhere. Yeah. So, so, you know, you're describing as others describe how Toyota is when we come back and, and, and talk about your book, as you've seen in other settings, there's a challenge of getting from here to there or getting from where our organization is. So like describing what Toyota is, is different than having three proven steps or, or a methodology for, for helping others change. So, you know, I, I, I do want to come back to that later, if that's okay. Or unless sure, you have yeah, something to add. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think that's where um, the evolution of this lean thing is going is um, is to get to some point where it's organic and part of the fabric of you know their institutions rather than this um, stuck on ornament on a tree, so to speak. Um, of, oh, we're going to do lean now, and look how shiny and you know, beautiful it is. But it's a standalone thing; it's not really the tree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, how how did you then end up? Uh, it'd be interesting the story of uh, to hear the story of how you ended up working at Toyota. Um, in in many ways, it was quite um, a fortunate sort of accident. Uh, I had been working at uh, aerospace company and we had four divisions there in uh, Southern California, one of which was dissolved and they consolidated into three divisions. My division was unfortunately the one that was dissolved and I was at a, a staff level in that division. So everybody at the top part of the, that organization or that division, um, was either given an opportunity to be assimilated into the remaining three divisions or go find something else. Uh, coincidentally, my boss there um, happened to play tennis with the VP of HR at Toyota. <laughs> and so on the tennis court, he mentioned to this gent that, uh, hey, he was letting go of a guy who was in a training development area because of this layoff. and um, it was uh, and he was trying to help me land somewhere, and so what followed was uh, a, a request to interview with the VP of HR in uh, Toyota, which, ironically, you know, it's in the same town where I live, and so I had driven by Toyota many times over the years on my way to work, and I remember thinking someday I'm going to work there. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. It's, it's really odd how everything converged. But in the end, then, I got an interview and was selected uh, to be the uh, training and development manager at the company headquarters um, as my first role there. And that's how, how, how it came to be. Yeah. So you had exposure to maybe related improvement methodologies um, where maybe there was some shared philosophy, but as you were coming in, coming in to work on training and development and then the Toyota university, how did they bring you up to speed? How did they train and develop you being new Mm. to Toyota? What did you have to learn? Was there anything you had to unlearn? Mm. Well, yeah, Uh, there was a whole lot I had to unlearn. It was the weirdest company I'd ever joined. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't make sense of Toyota for a long time. Um, it, it wasn't as if there was a very deliberate onboarding to Toyota or the culture. And I liken it to um, moving to a foreign country where you've essentially got no preparation and you just, you just immersed in it. And eventually you learn the, the language and from that you then learn the culture and, and and you begin to appreciate the history and all the other kind of things that come from that. And so it was really a, um, a process of gradual immersion and assimilation into it more so than anything deliberate. But it was also various points where my approach or my work behavior there was corrected. Um which taught me what was valued by the organization. For example, if I would take a project and quote, make a decision unquote, um, without having consulted with the stakeholders or the line people, whatever the people were that were involved or should have been involved in that decision, I was coached by my boss by means of uh, questions. Well, who, who have you um, shared this with? Who have you discussed this with? Where did, how did you come by this decision? And, and who did you include? And when I would say, well, nobody, I just thought it makes sense because, you know, I come from aerospace and that was the expectation. Just do it, right? Um, and so it was feedback like that and correction like that along the way that helped me understand that this is a different kind of place. Uh, and yet at the same time, uh, almost paradoxically, I was um, given more autonomy than I ever had at in aerospace. I had all this autonomy, but yet at the same time, I was really not expected to be a decision maker per se. <laughs> right. Yeah. Not yeah. the sole decision maker of, you know, there, there, there's maybe a mindset difference between knowing the answer and figuring out the answer and figuring out would involve input from yeah. others or support from others, even to be working on it, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember developing a curricula that made perfect sense to me, and I thought that's what I was hired to do. Um, and, and as a new person there, I says, OK, I want to I want to show what I can showcase what I can do. And I developed this beautiful you know, management training curricula that was the sum total of what I had learned, right? And what I had absorbed in my career and what the rightness of leadership was about. And only to get, um, you know, basically sent back back to start over. Oh. Um, mm. uh, yeah. And it's like, you know, you're, you're basically 
you don't even know who your customers are. You don't know what they want. You <laughs> you haven't consulted with them. You don't know if the delivery mechanism, you don't know what they already know. You don't know what they don't know. You don't know what they need to know. It's like, oh my God. So it was a very humbling experience. Yeah. Yeah. So then um, I'm curious, you, you mentioned earlier, can you, can you recall anything when you said there was a lot you had to unlearn? Like what, what, what's a, what's something that comes to mind? <clears throat> well, I think part of it is that um, the whole notion of how uh, problems are solved, how decisions are made, how questions even get answered required me to be turned more or less inside out because I no longer really understood what my role as a manager was. You know, because it didn't fit in any definition I had been exposed to in the industry before, not just aerospace, any place. Um, you know, everything that I had been taught was the right. In fact, coincidentally, I was teaching management at Cal State Long Beach at the time. Uh, and I had been quite successful at it. Uh, for nine years, I was teaching in the evenings um, as an associate professor there. Uh, or adjunct professor, I guess they called us. But nevertheless, and I'm and teaching stuff. And now when I think back on it, I cringe at the stuff I was teaching and the books that I was providing to teach the rightness of management, the rightness of leadership. And so I felt like I was hired for that reason. You know, I know all this stuff, right? right. Yeah. And yet when I came here, I, I felt like, at first, it was kind of irrelevant what I knew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, I thought, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I hear you saying is thankfully they coached you through it as opposed to um, leaving you on your own, you know, to, 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 to understand and to figure out. And, I, and I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, I, I, it seems like going through some of that experience yourself probably helps you relate to people that you've worked with along the decades who maybe now we're having similar discomfort of like, that's pretty fundamental. Like what, what is my role here? <laughs> I mean, that changes exactly. a lot. That's difficult to go through. Right. It, it is indeed. And in fact, um, obviously most of the people that get hired and got hired into Toyota headquarters came from American companies, other American companies. And so for most people, if not, you know, virtually all people, it was a different experience. And so the people that were coaching me had themselves been through that same transition. And we had a lot of laughs about it, uh, but they were in a much better position to be um, sensitive to what I was dealing with and provide me some advice and share in my confusion about things. Um, but, and, and very patient. But it was as if these same people who I learned to really respect um, had themselves undergone a transformation in their own leadership, at which I could see on display. And eventually I got to be getting it by watching what other leaders were doing and mimicking, uh, albeit awkwardly, mimicking what I thought they were doing. Uh, and like learning a golf swing that feels uncomfortable at first until you finally sort of get groove it. So 
uh, I started practicing and pretending to be like other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So fake it till you make it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so then you're, you're going through that process of learning and changing and then having to help others learn and change. You know, t- tell us about the learning or maybe first the purpose of the University of Toyota and, and what who the customers were of that and, and what you mm. figured out needed to be learned and, and, and maybe mm. coached on. <clears throat> well, first of all, the universe, halfway through my career there, I, I'm guessing I was about 10 years into my career at Toyota and I was tapped on the shoulder along with a half a dozen or so other people and asked to go figure out what a corporate university was and then see if it made sense for Toyota, and if so, build it. And so we we moved into some temporary spaces together. We sat at little tiny rented desks and faced each other, and uh, people from across the organization came together to kind of create this. And we did come to the conclusion after touring other universities and what have you, corporate universities, that it did make a lot of sense for us. And, and I think the primary need for it at that time was that the training was so fragmented um, uh, that it was hard to improve on it because it was, uh, there were bubbles of training everywhere. So I was responsible for what we called associate development, which was basically employee HR training kind of things. But we, I had a peer who was involved in sales training and another peer was involved in parts training and another peer was involved in service training and technician training. Another peer was involved in sales training. So, And we were moving along um, in our respective silos. Um, and it was recognized that, you know, maybe there's some gains here. Um, if we could collaborate and co-locate uh, and begin to sort of leveraged that that collaboration so that became that was sort of the roots um for toyota and so we bought a building that was close to the toyota campus a block or two away um and outfitted it as the university of toyota and then different floors uh, some cases on the same floor but different floors housed different kinds of specialties uh, among which was the what we call the Global Knowledge Center. Um, there's a whole story around that, but I'm I'm not sure that's where we want to go right now. But but how we were embedding Toyota, the Toyota heritage, um, into what we were doing, and sharing that globally. But but nevertheless, so that's where the University of Toyota came in. Uh, it was an attempt to standardize, I'll say, and consolidate and take advantage and leverage uh, opportunities to work together. And and do I hear you right that it was focused on not just Toyota North America? Was it also focused on Toyota's expansion into, let's say, Brazil or, or Europe to help support consistency and development there? Or was this North America? Um, well, it started out as being North America. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but the, the company was going through explosive growth uh, in those days globally. And uh, Toyota Japan, our, of course, the company headquarters, was really tapped out in terms of their capability to reach all of the, um, the far-flung enterprise 
uh, and particularly new locations, but even existing locations. And it was the training they did offer was almost exclusively around TPS manufacturing. And they quickly realized that um, they they didn't have the the capacity. Um, and and then from an English speaking standpoint, they didn't have the capability either. Um, so they just didn't have enough what we call coordinators to go around. Um, and so Toyota USA, being sort of the oldest child of the of the uh, overall enterprise, the most mature took on the family business, so to speak. And we were asked to take on the responsibility of providing education training to the, the far reaches of the globe, um, uh, which was a daunting task, as you can well imagine. But, um, and, and that became the, the Global Knowledge Center. I was not part of the Global Knowledge Center, but I was dispatched by the Global Knowledge Center many um, on many occasions, and I went to places like Singapore and Egypt and all over Asia and, and all over Europe and all over the country, all over North and South America. So it was a – in, in that era, um, two, two sort of things came out for me. One is that um, regardless of where you went, this is surprising to me, that – as soon as you walk in the door of a Toyota facility, I remember walking into a Toyota dealership in, in Cairo and yet it felt like home. Yeah. How so? Somehow, somehow, well, it, somehow it seemed as if the artifacts were similar. Um, the, the culture was similar. The, the methodologies that were employed, the problem solving, uh, routines were similar and even though outside the door the culture was uh, vastly different when I went inside the facility it felt like home it felt very similar um, and that was a, a great insight and the other was how hungry they were and open they all were to us coming to them to provide additional hmm. training particularly yeah. when it got outside the manufacturing uh, domain right so when you talk about you know different countries and outside of manufacturing, I was curious. You know, in your work through the University of Toyota, uh, as much as you could generalize, so what, what was the biggest challenge? Translating TPS to non-manufacturing environments, or translating TPS to just a non-Japanese site or team, mm. or both? Well. <laughs> the, it, it, yeah, it's it's a little hard to generalize, but um, I would say that there were, depending on the type of location, for example, if it was a brand new plant or brand, brand new facility, um, that was a completely different deal than if you had gone to a, a, a more mature Toyota facility just to improve it. Mm. So, for example, I remember going to Puerto Rico, the Toyota um, Puerto Rico was actually uh, very sophisticated um, and they were very much in tune with uh, Toyota. Um, but we were providing as, as we did continuous learning to try to, you know, keep every, all the plates spinning, so to speak, from a learning standpoint, um, very open. But on the other hand, uh, some of the facilities that I visited were brand new 
uh, new new offices or new subsidiaries, new partners, uh, new suppliers. Um, uh, one of which comes to mind is Canadian Pacific Railway, where you know they weren't new supplier, but they but we were working with them to try to treat our product differently. So it required a whole lot of background training on what is Toyota? Why do we ask what we ask? Why do we expect what we expect? Why are we so different? Right. So it really depends. And I think the challenge there for me was um, adapting to each condition, uh, trying to figure out what is it that this, this particular task requires. Is it background? Is it history? Is it leadership training? Is it TPS? Or what, what is it that I should bring here? Uh, and, uh, you know, vast uh, differences in complexity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll come back later. You know, I'll ask you about adaptations to the healthcare environment in particular. Okay. Um, yeah. That'll be, yeah. Uh, it's of interest to me. It'll be of interest to a, a large subset of our audience here. But you know, I wanted to ask one other you know question. Just back to um, the Center for Lean Thinking, and 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 this might not be the most monumental thing to talk about, but I, I think it's interesting. Of like, there are some who will say, ah, you know, Toyota never uses the word lean. Um, this seems you know, and I, I've seen Toyota's website, mm-hmm. corporate website, makes sort of a, a reference. I'm paraphrasing of like, well, you know, a lot of other people would use the word lean to describe the Toyota production system. Um, I'm just curious, you know, if you remember some of the thinking around calling it the center for lean thinking, as opposed to, let's say the center for Toyota thinking. That's a great call out actually. Um, There was a, when, when that was happening, when the university of Toyota was happening, there was this emergence of uh, the word lean on the, in the vocabulary, in business vocabulary. And while it wasn't really a clearly, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, articulated that we need to now start calling it lean, the, the zeitgeist around us that, that was around, uh, seemed to be crystallizing around the notion of lean, uh, particularly non-production improvement mentality and, and along in parallel with all that came out, you know, the, the uh, Jeff Lecker's book on the Toyota way, uh, which is really interesting. I was there when he came and visited and asked us questions about, you know, what is this thing? <laughs> what <laughs> right. is the Toyota way and all that? That's a whole conversation by itself, but nevertheless. So we thought, you know what, that seems to be where this subject matter is moving. And at the same time, too, most of the work that we were responsible for at the University of Toyota was in the white collar space Um, because our plants uh, were big and complicated enough to justify their own training and development arm. So they were functioning pretty independently, uh, and they were getting a lot of attention from Japan. However, the other side of the, of the coin was being uh, pretty broadly neglected, which is the white collar space. So we saw this as a way to kind of extrapolate what we could from TPS and say, and call it lean. Um, a, because it was 
hip those in those days <laughs> and it was more yeah. descriptive in some ways actually even though we didn't you know toyota didn't coin a term mm-hmm. um nor would it necessarily describe what they do as lean in fact many mm-hmm. people thought mm, that's not really an mm-hmm. apt description i, I, I bet there was debate yeah right yeah there was debate about it and but we felt like it seemed to be more or less on the cutting edge of current business thinking mm-hmm. So, mm. which we wanted to align with. Yeah. And then, you know, there's, you know, there's of all the different forms of sometimes endless online debate or arguing, you know, let's say on LinkedIn is if somebody posts the question of like, is lean the same as TPS? Like people will discuss that endlessly to what effect sometimes I, I don't know. I try not to get pulled into that, but <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to pull you into it a little bit here, maybe, but like not to argue, <laughs> but um, like if, if, I mean, is if you're looking at what an organization describes as lean, it seems like it might be in pretty close alignment or a high fidelity adaptation of TPS or it could seem like it's veered off pretty wildly, but they mm. use the word lean. Um, mm. So maybe I'll just make a statement and, and, and I'm curious your reactions. If people say, is lean the same as TPS? I think the answer is the classic, it depends. Mm. What, what, what do you mm. think? Well, first of all, I think that's my, my standard answer for almost every question. <laughs> it's a very helpful answer. It's usually. Yeah. You know, and it, it's usually followed with what I call the Toyota salute, which is a shrug. It's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because, you know, it, it, it's it's hard to pin down. First of all, let me get back up. It's hard to pin Toyota down and define it because it keeps morphing and changing, right? It's like what what Toyota was when I was there is probably not as representative of Toyota to uh, as it is today because it is constantly moving and evolving and growing and changing. And so, so it's hard to describe that. But I will differentiate between TPS um, and that's really what our challenge was because TPS arose, as everybody knows, from the production environment. That's, you know, that was the whole, whole point of it is to, is to have a methodology to run, to make cars um, and to compete. Uh, and, and that was arose in, historically as the reason, as the methodology to be able to do so. Um, but what we were asked to do was to extract the more fundamental principles from Toyota as they manifest themselves in TPS. So we had to sort of go upstream, if you like, and say, well, we see problem solving going on and the manufacturing floor. We see um, team members working together to work through a manufacturing issue. But what's, what's the philosophy in play here? Um, where, and that's the, the germ we thought that we need to capture, which is uh, empowering people, for example. We didn't call it that, but it just made, well, I call Toyota's management system common sense. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Because um, and we said, well, how do how do we adapt that, and what what does that look like in a sales operation or dealership or a parts depot or or, or what have you? How, how does what is the operating principles and philosophies and heritage, if you like? What does the Toyota way look like 
regardless of the setting. And to me, that that capture was captured more in a broader sense with lean than it was in the in the manufacturing context. It's you know some areas, even though they're non-manufacturing, like for example in a warehouse, it's manufacturing esque. In, in that there's repeating cycles of work over and over and over again. And other places um, that I worked, it is very abstract. Uh, and, and the work differs from day to day. We, so we, we, we see those two broadly. types, sorry to interrupt, but we see those two yeah. types of settings, let's say within healthcare, work that is very Absolutely. repetitive and kind of high volume versus work right. that is mass customization of a service, if you will. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And, and in fact, in my work in healthcare, I've come to that conclusion that much of the work can be subdivided into that work that is repetitive and predictable, and um, uh, they, it's, it's fairly straightforward. You know, you're scheduled, and you know, you have a, a given input, a different, a given process, and a given output. Um, and it's help, it was helpful for me to be able to differentiate those areas because in those cases I was able to apply TPS principles mm. pretty directly. Yeah. Yeah. So we, I think it's really important that you highlighted there. What I hear you saying is the difference between TPS practices and then principles and philosophies. So maybe here's a different three P practices, principles, philosophy of kind of bringing out the higher level principles and philosophy seems in a lot of cases more directly transferable where you may then develop a slightly different practice that's still true to the principles and philosophy. You said it better than I did. Well, <laughs> thank you for helping me think through that. Though, the way you, I, I was, I was just building on what you were saying. So thank you for that. No, I think, but I think that's, you know, I think that's a good way to looking at it. I think the, the framework of um, the Toyota way I'll, I'll yield to versus TPS um, should be recognizable. Uh, those underpinning the philosophical pra- uh, philosophies and practices, as you pointed out, and even policies, mm. uh, if you want to mm. add another P mm. in there. Yeah, okay, it's a 4P now. There we go. That's four a different P, yeah. 4P. Good. Not to confuse yeah, with Maybe we can market P. that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, and, and that requires us to zoom out quite a bit when you're looking at um, the kind of work and saying, uh, depending on the nature of the work and the sophistication of, if you like, of the, the organization or the leadership there, um, Sometimes you have to zoom out pretty far to be able to say, let's 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 talk about what our principles are. <laughs> what do we believe in here? What is our culture here? Uh, as opposed to you need to, you know, put a pokey device in this x-ray machine. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, I think back to when I was starting at General Motors in 1995, there was I, I Probably shouldn't have it, but I still have a copy of this 1995-96 guidebook of General Motors. They called it um, competitive manufacturing system. Mm-hmm. But if I were to pull that green book, I know it's on a shelf here somewhere, and go back through it, my memory is that it was all about practices. Mm. 
And the company at that point, and I know GM has changed a lot over 25 plus years, like trying to copy practices and paste them into an environment that had altogether different principles and philosophies could, you know, maybe not really have much effect or maybe it makes things worse. Like trying to install the practice of an andon cord in an environment where the principles and philosophies are, don't you dare stop the line. And if you do, you're going to get yelled at. Why spend the money on andon cords if you're not going to have a change in principles, philosophy, and policies? I'm sure you've seen things like that in other settings. Oh, no, absolutely. And I think that's the biggest <clears throat> single fail- failure mode when it comes to lean adoptions is the, the, the practices, tools, whatever you are readily available. And I think some of the appeal of, of this stuff is that it is readily available and easy to use. Um, and it, which of course was the point, but, um, so you you might ask, well, if I've copied all the practices, why am I not getting the same result? Um, because most organizations don't follow um, the process of plowing before you plant, mm. to put it in more yeah. simple terms. Um, they just spray the seeds out there and hope for the best. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, that's probably not going to work. Um, but it's easy to fall in love with that because, you know, you, you have all artifacts on the walls and different things going on that mimic, I'll say Toyota, uh, or mimic lean, but yet they never seem to achieve the gains. And I've been called in over my, during my consulting career, called in a number of organizations says, well, what's, what's missing here? Um, and I, I compared it to a puzzle. I said, well, if you look in a puzzle <laughs> right. box, you got all these pieces, but there's no picture on the cover, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. the, the box is like, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, uh, you can look at every individual piece and say, oh, this is red, this is blue, this is green, but it doesn't work together. It doesn't mm-hmm. fit together. It doesn't mm-hmm. form a, a, an overall image of what mm-hmm. you're trying to accomplish. And it's unsustainable if the culture is toxic mm-hmm. to those very same behaviors. Like pulling the line, I mean, pulling the yeah. cord rather. Right. Um, you know, it's like, great, we have a cord, Toyota has a cord, we're the same. <laughs> right. Well, mm. not really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I love the way that that analogy you used. I mean, you know, Toyota people say it's a company of uh, farmers. And when you start talking about plowing and seeds and planting and <laughs> developing <laughs> and growing people, I'm, I'm mixing the metaphors a little bit. Well, not too much, actually. Um, much of the Toyota history, um, when I went back, I had a unique opportunity to work on it. <clears throat> pardon me, with a team developing the uh, program that ultimately became known as the Toyota Traditions, which was a curricula to help onboard new people going back to the, the earliest days. So I had an opportunity to go to Japan and study that, and and I got to really appreciate the the earliest um, beginnings of the company and its rural roots. Um, and so it, it's not unlike, you know, we built a plant in, in, um, in the uh, Georgetown, Kentucky. Well, there was not much of a town there yeah, <laughs> when, right. we, when we went there, and, but it was mostly rural people. Mm-hmm. And even today, I mean, those plants pull in the locals who are uh-huh. – 
I'll say plain folk. They, mm-hmm. they, sure. they, they understand and appreciate common sense, uh, simple right. things and metaphors that they can relate to. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, um, as you're, you know, passing along what you've experienced and learned at Toyota Ken and, and, and how, you know, things that you've done outside of Toyota, I want to come back and talk about the book a little bit. Uh, again, it's lean leadership on a napkin an executive's guide to lean transformation and three proven steps. So that book uh, has been available. It is available. I, I love asking authors about their origin story for the book. Like there's a lot of books out there already, as you know, and you know, you, you, you have a lot to, to bring to this from your experience and perspective. So I'm not questioning that you should have, but I, I want to know what was the spark of why you decided to write a book and, and to write this book. Hmm. Um, I would say it, 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 part of the origin story is twofold. One was um, in my, ex, in my years at Toyota, uh, I remember being impressed how stories and pictures were embedded in everything, even, you know, in the A3s, um, uh, the simplistic images to try to explain uh, what would otherwise be a fairly complicated uh, idea. Um, and so I developed a knack, I think, over the years of, of recreating the ones that I had been exposed to on a napkin uh, or on a tailgate of a truck <laughs> uh, or, or in the, actually I remember one time I was actually drawing in the dirt of the, of a, a rear window of, of a truck. <laughs> I used that as my canvas. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so it was a way to try to talk about basic fundamental ideas, principles, tools, what have you in a simple way. Um, and so over the years, um, I would basically draw those uh, images out on napkins, literally, and tablecloths and trucks. And <laughs> and um, I remember I went to, uh, this is in healthcare, I went to a physician's office who I had been coaching. And he had on his wall a bunch of the napkins that I had drawn with him over this previous session. And I was flattered, but a little surprised. And I said, well, oh, my gosh, what are those doing? He said, oh, I, I, I like them. I appreciated them. And I used them to teach my people. He, um, he was a, a physician, but he was also a manager, leader. And uh, he said, you know, you should staple those together and call it a book. And I, we, we, had a, we had a good laugh about it, but it. But it's sort of, I started asking other people what they thought of something like that. I said, it wouldn't be much of a book. Um, in fact, even today, I, I, I tell people, you know, my book was intended to be brief and short and, and heavy on pictures and images. And I said, if I could have made it into a comic book, I would have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and so listeners understand it's, it's certainly not a picture book. There's a lot of words here, but you know, to a relatively <laughs> slim 150 pages, it's not overwhelming. Right. You know, yeah. I, th- I think yeah. it's very readable and there are illustrations that are helpful for sure. Well, yeah. And I think that that was the part of, of this is that as I started to, 
craft the story and fill in the white spaces between images, if you like, but, but to try to draw on what I had learned and what was, I thought was unique and would offer something to the community of, of learners out there that might be a little different than what they had previously been exposed to. Um, and with a overwhelming bias um, towards simplicity. And that was what I was after with this. I mean, it seemed to me that um, there were a lot of um, really good, rich uh, texts, I'll say, um, really well thought out books in that regard. And that the library shelves are full of books about Toyota and about Lean and all that. And yet, what seemed like a gap to me was <clears throat> for those people that just, for particularly those executives that just wanted a basic primer, you know, tell me what this thing is and, and, and feed it to me in a way that I can easily grasp it. I don't have time or energy necessarily to, to absorb all the other things that are out there, but this was to kind of get them started. Yeah. And, and there's a great mix of, um, you know, a discussion of principles and practices and, and stories and a little bit of history. So, I mean, I think even, you know, if there, there's a listener here who says, well, I've, I've read dozens of books about lean already. I mean, there, there are tidbits and things in here that um, are, are new and, you know, unique contributions and a lot of good reinforcement of principles and philosophies that people might have read from other Toyota people or other uh, students of Toyota. Um, so I really do encourage people um, to check it out. And, and, and can you give us, you know, and this is detailed much more in the book, of course, um, the three proven step approach that the subtitle alludes to introduction, integration, and internalization. This seems very different than another I word that people use implementation. Mm. Yeah. And, and um, it's been my experience that Implementation is actually the easiest part. Um, the the heavy lifting occurs in that first phase of um, sort of introducing the concept to people. And, and, and while it might seem pretty simple and pretty straightforward, it turns out, uh, and it was for me, by the way, I thought it was pretty simple, but it turns out that's where all the gravitational pull is. Um, because it's radically different in many cases from an organization's habits uh, or executive habits. And remember, this book was really aimed at, at executives with were top decision makers um, to decide if they wanted to embark on this journey in the first place. And so it, I tried to be realistic about it. Um, but for a person who has been in, in – leadership for a long period of time and learn all the habits that that we you know embed in our culture expectations we have of of uh, managers um it's it requires uh, some um deep reflection uh and a, a wide-eyed uh, um assessment of is this really something i want to do am i really ready for this you know uh it's because it's going to require me personally as a leader to be different, yeah, <laughs> to act differently. Right, right. Um, and I know, you know, John Toussaint is one of my heroes out there. Uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm so um, taken by the guts 
that it takes to be able to reinvent yourself, <laughs> I'll say. Uh, so, so that's why the introduction part, I mean, the introduction sort of softens it, but um, it really is the most, by far the most difficult part because that's where you're plowing the field, right? That's where you're preparing yourself and your organization to do something fundamentally different. Once you get to that tipping point and you start to integrate and start to include some of these things, embed some of the practices and uh, uh, that we talked about before, uh, adopt some of the principles, then if the pressure is maintained, you're on the downhill side of that bell curve where implementation, as you put it, or internalization, as I put it, mm-hmm. becomes relatively straightforward. Yeah. So it seems like if, yeah, so, you know, implementation often seems to be sort of a one-step approach that, that short changes, um, introduction or laying the foundation, understanding, you know, business drivers instead of just going and doing stuff. And then if that doing stuff, if it's done to people, I mean, I think another way maybe of using the word internalization is that if people weren't really fully participating in it, they haven't been able to internalize the principles and the purpose. As soon as the consultant or that engineer or whoever puts some practice in the place goes away, people would, you know, not unreasonably go back to their old way of doing things. Well, yeah. And I, and I, I think that is ultimately what is hurting the Six Sigma movement because, you know, we have people who, who come in experts uh, who come in, fix things and then leave um, it, where oftentimes the people left behind are just left with, here's your new machine, run it. Um, but it, you know, it, it as opposed to having in, in investing in the people themselves to be able to do these things and have it, their own ideas come to the surface and, and be deployed and, be treated like um, fully functioning adults as opposed to <laughs> just worker bees. Right. Uh, it's, and it's new to everybody. I mean, it's, it's new to leaders for sure, but it's also new to employees. You know, the workforce isn't used to being asked to solve problems. That's, it isn't used to uh, experimenting. It isn't used to taking risks. It isn't used to um, solving uh, or, or answering questions that, um, typically they, they would just tee up to management. Yeah. I got a problem boss. Yeah. <laughs> what should I do? And the boss come dreams up something and they go do it without a lot of skin in the game. And, and, and there's a kind of mutually reinforcing habits on both sides of the equation, because let's say if you're in a culture where you're never allowed to be quote unquote wrong, you're never allowed to have a bad idea or like, you know, workers, it's easier and it's less stressful to say, okay, boss, you do it. You know, even if you don't believe they're really going to come up with a good solution, um, it's safer, it's easier. And people get conditioned on both sides of that. Leaders have conditioned themselves to say, I have to jump in with the answers. And then frontline team members get conditioned to like, well, just, yeah, just let the boss do it. So breaking that cycle. Well, yeah is is key right yeah it, it it's safer um mm-hmm. you know in my book i uh, uh there's a story or, or a, an example i try to use where where people come to work in a traditional organizations and often they check their adultness at the door 
because outside of work, they, they are expected to solve problems and, and manage money and deal with families and, you know, contribute to society and make decisions and all that stuff. So it's all part of being a grown up, you know, and yet they come to work. And as I put it, they, sh- they get a little smaller. They seem to slump. They sort of shrink. Uh, it's like now I'm in this sort of mother may I mode. You know, is it okay if I go to the bathroom? Is it okay if I do this? Is, you know, and they yeah, wait for, yeah. for permission and direction all the time. And then when they go home at night, they get stand up again, like fully mm-hmm. grown adults. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I always yeah. thought that was kind of a dichotomy. Why wouldn't yeah. you want people to bring those grown-up skills oh. to work? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you see that, and I apologize. I, I didn't leave enough time for us to really talk about healthcare. So maybe we can have later this year another discussion that really you know focuses more on healthcare but what you're describing or what we're talking about can i've seen it in both manufacturing i've seen that same dynamic in healthcare people of the same age who may not even have a high school diploma people with advanced masters degrees fall into that same way of being in the workplace um it's sad to see it happen in manufacturing it's sad to see it in healthcare, maybe it's more surprising to see people with advanced degrees fall into those same behaviors and organizational dynamics that they're sort of conditioned to or forced to go along with. There's so much lost potential from that. We we live in comfort zones, um, I think, uh, across the board, whether it's work or home or family or society, whatever. We, we tend to reinforce our comfort zones over and over again. And for some people that bubble's pretty small uh, and it takes some courage to push on the edges of that because uh, it wants to pull you back you know, to what's known and what, you know, it, where people have some degree of confidence that they know how to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Ken, maybe, you know, there's a couple things, maybe we can do these relatively rapid fire um, because each of these questions could probably be a whole episode in and of itself. Mm. But in the book you talk about, this would be a fun game of family feud. We could survey 100 <laughs> former Toyota people, but we're not, we're, we're just asking Ken. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the book, you write about uh, misinformation that's out there about lean and lean leadership, like either there's a couple of different ways maybe to answer this. What's either the most common misinformation or, or and or what's the most harmful or counterproductive piece of misinformation out there? <clears throat> That's a tough one. I would have to say um, what, what comes to mind, first of all, is that um, on the part of leadership that you have to abdicate your role and your responsibility. Uh, uh, you're, you're, you have to give up, you know, and I, I try to tell my leaders that uh, empowerment is, does not equal abandonment. Uh, it just, and, and the other part of this is I would say many leaders are so conscious of the, the present uh, and, you know, the results that they're expected to achieve today Um and they really don't have eyes on their legacy mm. and what are they leaving behind. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the other notion that I'm constantly trying to dispel that lean is hard. It's not mm. hard. Yeah. Uh, it's at least it's not hard to understand. Uh, and, and sometimes people resist it. You mentioned healthcare. 
healthcare talks about the need for simplicity, and yet we do everything we can to make things more complicated. Oh, right. So, so, yeah. uh, but if people understood that, look, this is common sense. We're not asking for anything exotic here. You don't need to be a PhD to understand this stuff. You don't have to have a black belt to understand this stuff. This is pretty straightforward stuff. And it's almost as if people have this uh, aversion to it being simple. So mm. it can't, if it's simple, it can't be any good. Uh, or, yeah, or somebody I've, – I've heard people say, and I think there's something to it, that it's hard to sell simple, right? You want to portray something as complex and that there's rare understanding that you have to hire somebody to bring in. Well, and, and if that's the case, uh, I'm in trouble because <laughs> – my whole book was premise on that, yeah. on the notion of being uh, simple and straightforward. Well, but that takes a lot of understanding and reflection and effort to communicate <laughs> these things simply. And I think you do, you do a great job of that. Um, but maybe two other, maybe this next one, this next one will be easier to answer. And I think it falls into um, common misinformation that people take five whys very literally and in the book, you say it's not a rigid rule, the number five. Tell, tell us a little more about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really more of a philosophy around digging deeper. Mm -hmm. um, when we think we've solved the problem, um, rarely have we. Yeah. Um, and that is you keep, quote, solving the same problem, quote, unquote, over and over <laughs> again. Right. Clearly, you know, you're, it's like painting over rust. Um, you know, it might look good for a little while and then you're going to have to quote, solve that problem again. So why not take whatever time it takes to get to the bottom of it and, and, and build it correctly, get to the root cause. Now in some simple problems, it might only take three wise to get to the root cause mm -hmm. and really understand it. You know? Yeah. It's also possible of, that it'll take more than five. Yeah. It's also possible to dig too deep. Because like, if you keep digging why, 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 why forever, you're going to be talking about, you know, the, the universe at some point. <laughs> right. You know, right. We're, we're going to, you know, we need to find that sweet spot in, in going through the, that root cause analysis to where it's just something actionable that will solve this problem permanently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If I get to that point, all the other additional whys are unnecessary yeah. and counterproductive. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I've often said, if you keep asking why too many times, you either end up blaming society or Congress. And, and <laughs> we, we, we don't have direct action over, like, you know, Congress, we vote every couple of years. But, but yeah, I, I get your point of like, we can, we can get to a point of like, well, that's human nature. Like, well, okay, let's come back up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, We're not really going to change human nature today. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and I think that's the, a misunderstanding. And, and it, I think it's true of other tools, if you like, from Lean, is that sometimes they're taking too literally or misinterpreted. Um, oh, for example, I'll just leave you with this thought, the A3. Uh, I had clients in my consulting days that would say, well, we adopted A3. And I said, let me see them. And all it was was a, a, a narrative written in tiny font. <laughs> it's like here's our a3 it's one page well i okay <laughs> let's go back to the beginning so there's a lot of misinformation there even about how to use 
the most basic fundamental tools of, of lean. Yeah. yeah. You make me think of one other thing that's maybe more of a misunderstanding than a misinformation. And I'll credit another former Toyota person, Pascal Dennis, who has mm-hmm. written some great books as well. Yeah, but yeah. Pascal really helped me understand. Let's say if we're talking to someone about, you know, someone will say like, oh, we, we found the root cause. Okay. Well, how'd you find the root cause? Well, we went through the five whys. Well, how'd you do that? Well, we talked through it in a conference room and we found the root cause. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Pascal taught me like at best you have a suspected root cause and you need to go and test your understanding with countermeasures. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be very, that's something I've tried to pass along and something I've tried to continue to put into practice. It's a great point. Uh, it's easy to describe this process, but it is not necessarily easy to accomplish it. It can take months uh, of diligent you know, work. Um, I wish we had more time because there's some great examples that came out of manufacturing that I remember around root cause uh, in the five whys. But, but nevertheless, uh, sometimes while these tools and philosophies seem simple, they are simple. They're simple to understand, but they're not necessarily simple to execute. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so yeah, uh, uh, Pascal gave, did you a service? Yes. And, uh, and frankly speaking, yeah. most people take a very superficial approach to this particular topic. Yeah. And I was, I was guilty of that earlier on. So mm. uh, thank you to Pascal. So we all, yeah. we learn, we grow, right? Yeah, we all, yeah, we all did. I mean, we all start out with approximations of what we think is right. And then, you know, with, if you have a good coach, and I don't necessarily mean an ex outside consultant here, but if you have a good coach or a mentor or leader who's in, that gets it, um, those people will guide you as you make more and more attempts at learning. Yeah. So maybe just one last one here before we go. And I, uh, Damon Baker and I talked about this recently. Damon had been at Danaher for 10 years. Um, and learn from a lot of former Toyota people. But this idea of, and you talk about this in the book, which is why I'm bringing it up. I think there's a misunderstanding that someone can say, I am a sensei. Mm. And you say that that could even be offensive. So tell, tell us what you've learned and what you teach others about the use of this word sensei. Well, at the risk of alienating some of your listeners. <laughs> I started it, so it's okay. We'll blame you. Okay, okay, we can. we'll blame you. Um I didn't know really the meaning of the term myself when I was at Toyota, other than the context of karate. And in fact, I went to karate training and I had a sensei. But what I learned then and also at Toyota is that it's an honorific term um, that is ascribed to a person, usually a person that's very humble, would never ever have considered themselves that. It'd be like me introducing myself to you as um, you know, I'm the world's greatest expert in this particular subject. You know, so it, it comes across as arrogant and, uh, uh, and, and off-putting. Now, if somebody said, you know, I'm going to introduce Mark, who is the world's greatest expert, that's a different thing. But if you call yourself that, it, it's not considered, it, it's considered to be ingenuous. In, it's, so th- there are industries out there who, 
perpetuate this idea and it makes me wince when I see on a business card, you know, I'm a sensei. And I understand yeah. the context is well, different. But yeah. Yeah. Well, sometimes companies do that to people. They give job titles yeah. like that. Um, yeah. I've, I've seen, and I, I don't know, I mean, I don't know who's certifying. I've seen someone who is a quote unquote certified sensei, mm. which kind of flies in the face of that. So yeah, I could choose, I'll use Pascal as an example. Again, I would absolutely refer to Pascal as a sensei to me. Absolutely. And part of it is that I know Pascal would never, ever say that he was a sensei. He, exactly he, right. he, he shares that philosophy. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it also flies in the face of a a core fundamental lean principle of humility. Right. Right. A humble person would never refer to themselves as a sensei. Yeah. And humility versus uh, false modesty. You can figure out that difference usually soon enough. So, yeah. Yeah. But um, gosh, so that was one of the things I, maybe we can take a deep dive some other time, you know, in the book you talk about, these principles that, again, sound simple of respect for people, these pillars, respect for people, respect for humanity, or, you know, no, sorry, leading with, hum- um, boy, I got humility, that, yeah. I got that wrong. Sorry. No, the, the, yeah, those two key principles of respect for people and leading with humility. I got the humanity, humility crossed up here. So, but those, those principles are, are something Toyota people will emphasize, and I think it's interesting that people, organizations are more often trying to learn or adopt practices. I don't, you know, I can't think of a time someone reached out and said, could you help me become more humble? <laughs> right? You know, that's a really interesting thing. And, uh, and I know we're running short on time, but I do want to say this. Humility happens when you adopt certain principles and certain behaviors. Uh by asking, for example, by asking the workforce what they think about a problem, you'll learn new things. And, and that makes you almost like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even know, you know. Um, and so it's not as if you can go out and read a book about becoming humble. But I do think that if you practice the Socratic method of open questioning from a place of curiosity rather than judgment, right, I just really want to understand, you start to realize and appreciate how much you don't know. Uh, And and that, I think, um, prepares you to become a humble leader. Uh, In some organizations, Toyota being one of them, they would deliberately put top leaderships out of their comfort zone, like heading departments that they know nothing about for exactly that reason because it fosters humility in that leader. Now the leader has to listen because they don't know. They're not going to make decisions. They're not going to solve problems because they don't mm-hmm. understand it themselves. Yeah. Wow. So thank, thank you for, for all of that, Ken. And um, we'll, I, I would love to take a deeper dive into that sometime. We can talk more about healthcare. And just one quick story back to you. One of the most effective hospital laboratories I ever, dir- hospital laboratory directors who I ever met was a nurse. Mm. who was put out of her comfort zone. They needed somebody to run the lab and she couldn't tell people what to do because she didn't know how to do the work. And, and, and Stephanie was her name would talk about how that helped her grow so much, not just as a lean leader, but just as a leader. Absolutely. A hundred percent. That is exactly the point. 
Yeah. And I think healthcare rarely does that. Like here, it was sort of an emergency and it, it turned out to where I think there's something to be learned from how she went about that. Yeah. And I think I'm at my, in my current role and all the roles I've had, I was, I was at my most effective when I was in that space where I didn't really know what to do, but I knew um, how to ask questions. And I knew, you know, I, I had learned uh, the power of humility, not to deploy it like, you know, <laughs> fake modesty, as you put it, but this right. is legit. You know, it's like, I'm sorry. I, I, maybe I should know this stuff, but I don't tell me, teach me. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll come up with a, a certification. How's that? How <laughs> about a Geiger counter for humility? <laughs> well, Ken, thank you um, so much. Our, our guest here again today has been um, Ken Pallone. Um, his book, again, is Lean Leadership on a Napkin, an Executive's Guide to Lean Transformation and Three Proven Steps. Uh, it's, a, it's a really nice book. Um, I, I've had the opportunity to have a couple of conversations with Ken over the years, and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed today the opportunity to continue that and this time record it and share it with others. So, Ken, thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. Yeah, you're certainly welcome. And I, and I do want to say this, Mark, because you may not remember this, but you and I were at an event together. It was a, um, in a healthcare improvement event, um, I think put on by Catalysis. And I remember we chatted out there in the book space where people were selling books and I told you about this idea. I don't even know if you remember this. And I asked for your advice and your advice is right. Because <laughs> I've never written before. He says, <laughs> yeah. well, start by writing. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought the book to completion. And that, that is quite an accomplishment to celebrate because I, I try to remind myself this all the time as I'm starting to write something new, like you have, there's this uh, sort of like with problem solving, right? You can't just think about it and expect then it's going to come out perfectly. At some point you've got it. You, we can apply uh, plan, do study, adjust to, mm. to writing. So it's plan, write, edit, adjust. It's a different term here. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's great. But I'm, well, I'm glad, I'm glad you did it. And um, you know, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing here today. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I hope we get to do it again. Well, great. I will sign you up for that for sure. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.